We're in Joshua chapter 8. I think that's all I have for you tonight as far as announcements go. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and we'll jump into the scriptures. Father, thank you, God. We are so uh, grateful that your word speaks to us today. God, truly, your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, whether we're, we're reading from the Torah or uh, whether we're reading from the Psalms or maybe the New Testament, the gospel accounts, God, it is all your word. Yes. And you have a word for us tonight, even in this story that happened so many centuries ago, God, there's so much for us to learn. And so our ears are inclined to your voice. God, our hearts are open to receive. Father, we're ready uh, with anticipation to take what you feed to us and to grow and to apply and to have a closer walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know the story. We've been, we've been hanging out in Joshua with Joshua and the Israelites. It's been pretty amazing to see what God has faithfully done as he's brought so many promises to pass and uh, bringing his people, as he said he would, in spite of their disobedience and lack of faith into ultimately the promised land and, and then the extraordinary victory that God uh, granted to them at Jericho as they just obeyed the simple commands of God and walked around a city, a fortified city, a military city with massive walls that uh, would have been seemingly so impossible for the, the people of God to, to overcome. I mean, they were kind of a warrior nation, but not so. They've been in some skirmishes and some battles, but um, one would be hard-pressed to say that, that they were really uh, a military nation even though they had a lot of soldiers. And so, you know, you remember the story, they just simply obeyed the word of God. They walked around that fortified city and, and lo and behold, what happened? Well, the walls came, they came a tumbling down. And there was a, an amazing victory that was granted to God's people. And, and uh, of course, you remember all of the, all of the the gain that was given to them was devoted to the Lord. And then, then after all of that, in chapter 7, we run into, into the big but. Yep. It's the big but of chapter 7. Because things seem to be going amazingly well until, uh, lo and behold, there was sin that was found in the camp. And because of that, you remember what's, what should have been really a seemingly simple victory turned into a defeat for the children of Israel. Um, and by the way, it wasn't that the people of Israel were just aching because of Achan. They were also aching because of Joshua. And what we'll discover tonight is that, uh, yes, there was sin in the camp, and that was what really God identified as the thing that put his purposes for the people of Israel on hold. Hey, just a reminder tonight, um, and we're going to see how God brings victory out of defeat, because that's what God always does. But you know, there are consequences to our sin. And sometimes sin will put the purposes of God on hold, because he loves us so much, right? It's not just that God is looking to, to beat down his beloved people. 
He loves us so much. He has a jealous love for us uh, that is so deep that, well, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, whom he loves, he chastens. And then, therefore, there's the exhortation to be zealous and, and to repent. And so, you know, we have that pictured for us in this amazing story as, as the purposes are, are kind, they kind of come to a screeching halt. And then that sin is discovered uh, and it's rooted out. And like I said, um, it wasn't, though, just the sin of Achan. It was also the fact that uh, Joshua just ran into something without inquiring of the Lord. After an, an amazing victory that God had given, uh, he just had a full head of steam, and instead of putting it on pause and seeking the counsel of God, you, well, you know what he did. Um, he listened to the people that were really excited around him, and he found himself, he found himself in a heap of trouble. By the way, uh, the, the word AI... Uh, the name for this city, it actually means heap, and it became, it became a heap of trouble for Joshua and the people. Um, it can also be translated ruin. It was, it was kind of like a little dump, you know? I mean, it wasn't a big city. It was nothing compared to Jericho, um, and you know, you could imagine why the people would have thought, well, Jericho fell so simply. Of course, AI, this little dump, this heap of nothing is going to be no big deal for us. Lo and behold, you know, um, they learned some really hard lessons. And, and I think tonight, it's an amazing chapter. Um, we have a lot of verses to get through. Uh, and so we'll unpack what we can. But there are a lot of good lessons to learn from what God does in Joshua's life and what he does with the people of Israel. Um, also, I just want to remind you that as we're studying Joshua, remember he's, he and the children of Israel, they're going into the promised land and um, you know, from an allegorical point of view, the promised land represents the spirit-filled Christian life. If you listen to some songs and old hymns, um, you could have the tendency to connect the promised land to um, our e eternal abode, you know, you could connect it to heaven. Um, but biblically, that's not what the allegory stands for. It is a picture of the spirit-filled Christian life. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why we know that that's the case. One being, um, there, will be, there will be no more battling against the flesh. There will be no more adversaries. There won't be any giants in the land when we go to heaven. And somebody can say amen for that because it's going to be amazing. Well, check the story out. This is just so good. Uh, remember, the context is, is, um, is defeat and discouragement. Verse 1 says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. What a good word from God. Maybe you need to hear that tonight. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and go and arise. Go up to the heap. <laughs> See, I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock, different here, only its spoil and its livestock, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, lay an ambush against the city behind it. By the way, we're not going to have time to really jump into this, but, um, but if, if Achan would have just waited, right, if Achan would have just waited, you remember, I mean, he, he got a 
He got a, a, um, a little excited. He took for himself some of, the, some of the goods that came from the conquered city of Jericho. In his impulsiveness, if he would have just waited and trusted in the Lord, he would have discovered that in this next victory, it wasn't that all of the goods that uh, had been plundered from the city were going to be devoted to the Lord or to the Levites or to the tabernacle, but the people would have been able uh, to keep it for themselves. It's just a, just a little reminder for us today to be patient, to let the Lord provide. Make sure you always do it in a way, whatever it is that you're doing, do it in a way that honors God. So he says to Joshua, and you know, this is obviously not the first time that Joshua has heard this, um, and I'm not saying tonight to you that Joshua was an individual that just struggled with chronic fear, but as a leader, he did find himself in a position more than once where he was afraid um, or he was discouraged. And so God, you know, as he just faithfully does, he brings that word of encouragement. Hey, Joshua, you know, uh, let me unpack it a little bit. It has been tough. Uh, You are overwhelmed. This wasn't a good thing. We've settled it and resolved it. And so don't don't be afraid, right? Don't be dismayed. Don't let this situation consume you or identify you or become the framework of your life. You know, I think that um, this is just the natural disposition that we have after, after failure, after struggle. Like, you know what I'm talking about. When things don't go the way that you want them to in your life, and it is a result of your own bad decision-making. You make a bad decision before? Yes. Maybe once, maybe twice, maybe in the last 10 minutes. You know, maybe today, I'm sure, you know, maybe today, um, but even more so, not just a bad decision, but, but sin, like real sin in our lives. When you fail in your relationship with God, you know, when, when you don't meet the expectations that you have for yourself, when you see yourself through rose-colored lenses and then, and then you have that discovery once again that you're just a mere mortal, that you're just like everybody else. Um, you know, and maybe even that you're not as perfect as you thought that you were. You're surprised by your own failure. Um, what a good thing to be reminded that God wasn't surprised. God knew all along. But you know in those moments, and, and I'm not saying to you tonight that those moments shouldn't hurt because they should hurt. And I think the grief over sin is something that identifies us as a child of God, right? If you can sin and there's no there's no compunction. If you can sin with impunity, if you can sin and, and, and have total relief in your heart from any sense of guilt or grief, then there's a problem because you know your relationship with God is built on love. And anytime you do something that, that is in conflict with a loving relationship that you have, obviously the byproduct of that should be grief. But... But what I'm saying to you tonight is that's not the place that God wants us to stay. God comes along and identifies to Joshua that he's still present. He's still present in Joshua's life. How do we know that? Well, well, he speaks to Joshua. He gives him a word. It's an encouraging word. It's an uplifting word. It's a reminder that, that not only is he present, but his power is still available. 
right? The promises have not been altogether thwarted. Hey, Joshua, this hasn't disqualified you. And, and I'm going to tell you why that that's the case, because just like I gave you the victory at, at Jericho, I'm also going to give you the victory at Ai. The details are going to look a little different, but man, that must have been so encouraging for Joshua to hear. You know, can I just remind us tonight that God brings victory out of defeat, God brings victory out of defeat. If you've walked with God for any length of time, you know that you have experienced that probably more than once. The Christian life is not without failure. It's not without failure. And I, I think sometimes you know that we look at other people's lives and sometimes we only see the victories. This is particularly an issue with social media because we can frame ourselves in an unbelievably perfect, squeaky clean way. We look at other people's lives sometimes and we think, man, they're, they're so perfect and they have it all together. And you know, if you're thinking that about somebody else, let me just remind you, there's only one who is perfect and his name is Jesus, you know? We all... We all got issues, y'all, we, we all got issues. Don't present yourself as a, a, a perfect Christian because there is no such thing. We are all growing, we're all being sanctified. You know, we all battle, we struggle against the flesh. And let me just say to you, this, is, this statement is not advocating failure, but I will tell you that failure is one of our greatest teachers. Failure can be one of your greatest teachers. You know, if you're willing to bring your failure to the Lord, too many of us, after we fail, we choose to stay knocked down. And that's what the devil wants, right? I, and I'm not saying to you tonight that the devil just comes up and sucker punches us and lays us out flat. No, no, like we give in. It's a decision that we make. We're the ones who, who yield. But man, once we're down, you know what he says, stay there. That's what he says. He stands over you with a pointed finger as the adversary, and he says, it's better for you just to stay down. And God's word for you isn't stay down. God's word for you tonight is get up, get up, get up and see what the Lord can do. You know what Joshua discovers here is that God, even, even in Joshua's failures, God did not abandon him. God did not abandon his people, and God, can I remind you tonight, he does not abandon you. Now, I, I don't know how far uh, off the road you are. I don't know how long you've been off-roading from God. I don't know what, what uh, your AWOLness or your MIA-ness looks like. I don't know how, how deep the pit is that you've dug for yourself, right? I don't know what heap of trouble you've created for your own self, what I do know is this, man, God can get you back on track in one minute. He can get you back in, on track in one minute. He doesn't abandon. He's waiting with open arms. And not only that, what we see in Joshua's life is God organizes a victory out of Joshua's mistakes. I want you to think about that for a minute, right? He organizes a victory out of Joshua's mistakes. In other words, he takes the mess that Joshua has made and he turns it into something that glorifies him, that glorifies the Lord. And he is the only one that's able to do that.
You know, he is the miracle maker. You can bring your tattered, shredded life. You can bring the results, the consequences of your bad decisions. You can bring the ashes, and you know what the Bible says. He will, he will turn your ashes into something beautiful. Only God is able to do that. God can use anything. Do you believe that tonight? Do you believe it tonight? What an opportunity. What an opportunity we have, even in our failures, to, to hand those over to God and to watch him do something great. Some people won't let you forget your failures. Some people will not let you forget your failures. But God is the one who's able to turn them around and use them for good, right? So tonight I want to encourage you. Um, God wants to take that failure. God wants to take the the, the fumbling and the faltering in your life, and as you choose to repent and place it in his hands, he can turn it around and make it something good. Alexander White said this. He said, no matter what mistakes we make, the worst mistake of all is not to try again. For the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Maybe tonight, maybe tonight. It's good, it's good you're here in the presence of God's people, but maybe tonight you're the one who needs the new beginning. You know, maybe, maybe you've been leaning back into the things of the world and old behaviors, you know, that were the very thing that drew you to Christ in the first place. And, and if you need that new beginning tonight, um, I want to encourage you to turn your heart to him. Well, the Bible says in verse 3, so Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor. Now, you know, before it was like the people came back, the spies came back, and they're like, hey, man, that thing's just a little heap. It's, it's no big deal. We've got it. Just send a couple thousand people. Well, Joshua's not about to make the same mistake twice. He chooses, chooses 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night, and he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us, just as before, we will flee before them. And they will come out after us until we've drawn them away from the city, for they will say, they're fleeing from us just as before, so we'll flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand." And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. Check this out. This is a, a key verse in this, in this section. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I've commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, so the west of Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. And so, so the strategy is laid out. Um, there's an ambush, you know, completely different than the strategy at Jericho, obviously. And by the way, just so you know, this wasn't Joshua's strategy that he had created. We understand from verse 8 at the very end, the last sentence, that this was the strategy that God was giving to Joshua and the people to execute. And so the idea was this. Um, he selects 30,000 mighty men of valor um, there's a group of them that are going to go up and they're going to lay wait. They're going to be in ambush. They're going to secretly go in by night and they're going to position themselves in such a way that as the 
as, as the situation unfolds, they're gonna be able to ambush the people in the city. There's another group of people that's led by Joshua. They're going to go down to the very front of the city, and they're going to do like they did before. They're going to act like they're attacking the city the same way before, probably with the same number of people, luring the soldiers out of the city. Because what was going to, what was going to happen was, as those soldiers came out to destroy the Israelites in their mind once again, the Israelites were going to flee pulling the soldiers away from the city, and then those who were waiting in, in ambush would go into the city, plunder the city, set it on fire. So then what you would have is you would have the soldiers, the men of valor of Ai, stuck literally between two camps of Israeli soldiers. It seemed like a pretty good strategy. It is interesting as we think about this um, that, you know, the strategy, I mean, obviously there was a lesson that Joshua learned. And the lesson that he learned was this, he needed to always inquire of the Lord. He needed to always inquire of the Lord. You know, I think for Joshua, you remember, um, they're defeated at Ai. He goes before the Ark of the Covenant. He falls on his face. You know, he is told by God that there's sin in the camp. It's all ultimately sorted out. But Joshua is not going to take a step again until he hears from God. You know, he's learned the hard way that he can't just rely on the successes of the past, that he can't get all caught up in the excitement of the people, that as a leader of God, you know, I gave you this uh, definition of leadership, spiritual leadership a couple of weeks ago. It's unbelievably simple, but a leader, a spiritual leader is first and foremost someone who's led by God. It's not someone who has influence and um, amazing gifts and charisma and personality and brilliance and has the capacity to strategize, I will take some, somebody who has none of that but is able to hear God, I will take that person over the other person every single time, every time. And what Joshua learns here is this, God, I need the strategy, I need you to speak to me. Josh, Joshua was reminded that there's no replacing the process of waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord, not assuming that just because this was the way that it happened in the past, that it was going to happen the same way again. You know, you can't put God in a box. God doesn't want to be in a box. God doesn't want to be in a box of your own making. Thank God for the victories that he has given to you in the past. But that doesn't mean that you don't need to lean into God and, and wait upon him for his guidance in the present moment. You know, in fact, what we discover is this. God does a classic thing. He mixes it up, right? I mean, he lays a strategy out that is almost the complete opposite of what happened in Jericho. And you know, uh, like indirectly, he's saying to Joshua, hey, don't forget, it's going to be different almost every single time, which, which means your ear is going to have to be inclined to me. It's going to have to be inclined to me. You can't just take a step on your own without hearing my guidance, my voice, my leadership, my direction in every single aspect of your life. 
And I think, man, what a good, solid reminder for you and for me today. We don't want to step outside of God's will for our lives. You say, well, how do you know what God's will is? Well, we know because we have the word of God, right? I mean, he has disclosed to us what his will is. And then, you know, when we're when we're thinking about different aspects of our lives and decisions that we're making, we have prayer, we have the Holy Spirit. Like we can have times where we're sitting in the presence of God and we can be led and directed by Him. God, what is your will for me in this situation? Maybe you know, you're looking for a job and you have four options before you and you know the tendency is this, well, which one pays the most with the least amount of effort because that's the one I wanna pick. Well, well, well wait a minute. May, wait a minute, maybe God, maybe God has a different plan. Maybe there's a group of people that God is sending you to and it's gonna require more work for less money. I, I'm just saying, you're like, well, that's not a word of God for me tonight, Pastor. <laughs> I reject that in Jesus' name. I'm just saying, man, whatever it may be tonight, if, if you've been struggling with the what of your life, you know, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? Don't just rely off of the way things were done in the past. Really make sure that you are inquiring of the Lord. He goes on to say in verse 10, or the Bible does, Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people. By the way, that's just, that's uh, military talk, not um, condiment talk. <laughs> mustered the people and went up he and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai and all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with the ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush, check this out, between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So, you know, he's learning, you know, he's learning. It's not like he grew up as a military man, but he's recognizing that strategy does matter and and so probably heard this from God too. He knew that there was a possibility that the people of Ai were going to join forces with the people of Bethel. And so the people of Bethel would come and fight with the people of Ai against the Israelites. And so what does he do? Well, he wisely stations a number of soldiers between those two cities. And we're gonna find later that this is exactly what happened. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and his rear guard west of the city. Check this out. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all the people pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. So like all of this plays out, not just the way that Joshua had foreseen, but the way that the Lord had foreseen. By the way, this is one reason why we always want God's input on everything that we do because he's the only one who can see the end from the beginning, right? He's, we have such, we see, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass and that darkly or dimly. You know, our capacity to see is so narrow. 
is so myopic, it's so limited, and then it's so clouded by our, our own emotions. You know, not just that we don't see everything that's coming, but even the things that we do see, you know, it can be all twisted up in the way that we feel about things. And so God just speaks from the perspective of eternity, and all of this just rolls out. It's interesting to me the position that he puts Joshua in, right? Joshua, initially, he's at the ravine, he's hanging with all the soldiers, and then the next thing that we see, and it's in uh, verse 13, is that Joshua's down in the valley. You know, he's down in the valley. You say, well, what does that mean? It means that Joshua was the bait. Joshua was the bait. God, God took his leader into the valley. God took his leader into a place that he was at a strategic disadvantage. You know, God took his leader into a place that was uncomfortable. God took his leader into a place where, where he would have been potentially exposed. You know, God took his leader into a situation that was difficult. God did something in Joshua's life that he did not do, that Joshua did not do the first time that Ai was attacked. Because the first time that Ai was attacked, he was not the captain leading his soldiers. He was a general that was staying safely behind the lines. And so the whole thing's changed. Now he's got, now he's got his boy leading from the front. You know, by the way, when you're in leadership, nothing good happens when you're leading from behind the lines. You know, God hasn't called us to uh, preserve for ourselves a safe, protected place while everybody else is at the point of the spear, at risk. You know, that got David in a lot of trouble. You know, at the time when the kings went out to war and Israel was out to war, you remember the story, it was springtime and where was David? Well, David was hanging in his house. David was where it was comfortable. David had premeditated some sin in his heart while his soldiers were at risk. And I think, you know, there are a lot of lessons in this for Joshua and for us. The truth is this, God's leaders lead from the front. God's leaders are the ones who are willing to, God's leaders are the ones who are unwilling to ask others to do what they themselves are unwilling to do, right? That, that's, that's solid leadership. And I think not only that, but I think that also leaders have to be will, willing to be taken into the valley, You've got to be willing to be in a place where, you know, you are at risk. And the fact is, you know, God was always going to bring the victory. So what really was the risk? You know, I've kicked this around so often, you know, as a, a leader, as a pastor. What does risk really mean? Like if we're walking in the will of God and we've inquired of the Lord and we're seeking his face and we're being obedient I mean, I'll just tell you, I don't think that there really is such a thing as risk because God's in control. God's got it handled. You say, well, well, what happens if you die while you're serving the Lord? I say, well, then you're in the presence of God. You know, I mean, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. This was the place the early church lived. Like they lived this. They lived fearlessly. They lived courageously. Now, what are the things that are missing today in the church that, hold us back from being the influence that God wants us to be in our culture, I would say one of the things is this, we're so unwilling to risk. 
You know, we, we desperately want lives of comfort and ease. We spend our lives mitigating our risk. And then that bleeds into our relationship with God. God takes his leader into the valley. And it is just a good reminder as well that our relationship with God is not, it's not all mountaintop experience. It's not all mountaintop experience. We want that, right? I mean, there are moments, and especially, you know, in worship, and by that I mean when we're singing praise to God where it's like, oh, man, this is so, this is so good. It's so amazing, right? You're like, oh, God, I don't want this to end. It's extraordinary. Or, you know, there's some miracle that God's working out in your life, and you think, why can't it always be like this? Why can't it be one miracle after another miracle and, and just all mountaintop? And the fact is this, as a Christian, it is, in this life, it is not all mountaintop. But don't forget, the fruit grows in the valley. The fruit grows in the valley. It's in the valley where God does his deepest work in your life. It is in the valley where you are seemingly at risk, where you are feeling exposed, where you are vulnerable, where you are at a strategic disadvantage. It's in the valley where, you know, you're walking through what seems to be the valley of the shadow of death, and the adversary seems to be having his way. I want to remind you that in that place, while you may see defeat, God sees only victory. God sees only victory. And this is the story of the Bible. You know, you say, well, give me an example. I say, well, what about Gideon? You know, I mean, you've got the Midianites who have gathered together, and they're more than can be numbered, and, and Gideon musters, because that's military term, he musters up an army, and God's like, you got too many people. You got too many soldiers. And so God whittles it down. He whittles it down almost to nothing. Because what is perceived as a defeat in the eyes of the world is victory in the eyes of God. I think about, I think about, that was tepid, half-hearted, <laughs> embarrassing and shameful. You can, you can clap again in a way where you mean it. <laughs> I, I think, about, I think about Hezekiah, and you remember the, the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by Assyrians, and I mean just surrounded by Assyrians, and they were mocking and demeaning and making fun of the Israelites, and, and you know, Hezekiah was praying, and, and you, the next morning he, he woke up and went out, and 182,000 soldiers had been wiped out by one angel. By one angel, right? And it's like, well, wait a minute. The city's been taken siege. Well, God brings the victory with one little measly, ordinary, run-of-the-mill angel. And you don't just have a measly, ordinary, run-of-the-mill angel on your side. You've got the Son of God on your side. Yeah, I think about, I think about, I'm not done. I think about jo Jonathan and his armor bearer. You know, the Philistines, they've, they've mustered their soldiers, and, and Saul's by the terebinth tree, and he's, he's weak, and his knees are knocking, and he's shaking, and he's full of fear, and the people, as they're looking at this leader from, who's leading from behind the lines, you know, full of fear, the people are hiding in caves, and his son says to his armor bearer, hey, what's it with God if he saves by many or by few? Like, it the victory belongs to the Lord. And so two of them go up, insurmountable odds, right? I mean, what seemed to be a defeat was in fact a victory. And of course, the greatest one of all is the cross of Christ. 
You know, while, while all of hell itself was howling against the Son of God who was hanging on the tree, thinking that they'd won the victory, Jesus was, in fact, in what seemed to be a defeat, was establishing the greatest victory of all time, the victory of God over sin. I don't know what you're facing tonight. I don't know what seeming defeat you might be in the middle of, but I do know this, that you can speak the mighty name of Jesus. You can surrender and submit to the Lord. And you can watch him bring a victory. Well, the Bible says in verse 18, moving right along, then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that's in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in ambush rose quickly out of their place. That was the sign that they were waiting for. And as soon as he'd stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. They had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. So the plan rolls out just as God and Joshua had said that it would. The sign, obviously, for the ambush um, to proceed was Joshua stretching out his javelin or Joshua raising the spear. I don't know why, but in, in my mind, for some reason, I just was thinking about the contrast between Moses raising his staff and the Red Sea being parted and Joshua here raising his spear. I think symbolically what it conveys to us, or allegorically or metaphorically what it conveys to us is this, um, that the people, the people in this moment as they entered into the promised land, the people were a people of war. I mean, there was a battle, there were battles that they were commanded to fight until the land was, was purged of those who would have been committing idolatry against God. There was a purification that needed to happen. And I think it's a reminder for us, because remember I said to you that the promised land is an allegory of the spirit-filled life. Well, this life is filled with battles. This life is filled with battles. We, in a sense, have been called to raise the spear or raise the javelin, not against people, not against a culture, but against the flesh, against the devil, and against the world system. You know, you are, you are in a war. And Paul says it. He's like, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. I mean, this is military terminology. He says, our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. And they're able to tear down strongholds and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Like that terminology is warfare terminology. Jesus said to his disciples when they couldn't cast a demon out of a young boy, he said, but this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. He's talking about weapons of warfare because we are in a spiritual battle, right? We are in a fight,
We're fighting against the adversary, the devil, his legion of demons that he has strategically arranged. We are fighting against a world system that is contrary, is in conflict with the will of God, the story of God, the purposes of God. When the Bible talks about not loving the world and the things in the world, is talking about the world system, the world's philosophy. There are lies that are conveyed in the culture that are in conflict with God's will for your life and my life. And we fight against those things. And then, and then finally tonight, man the flesh, the old man. I'm not talking about your husband tonight. The old man, you know, the old woman, the old nature. You know what I'm talking about. That thing that still dwells in you. You say, Pastor, man, that thing, that old nature, it's gone when I put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ. No, it's not. That's why the Bible says, reckon the old man dead. Put off the old man. And you're like, man, in Jesus' name, Pastor, I've been waiting for you to say that. That's not what I mean, all right? Put off that old nature. You know, the... the imagery here in the Greek language is like taking off a garment, folding it up and setting it aside, not to put it on again. You say, well, how often do I have to do that? <laughs> second by second, church, second by second, right? And the biggest aspect of this battle is in our brain. It's in our mind. Right? That's why we're called to take every thought captive under the obedience of Christ. You know, when the Bible in Philippians talks about um, being anxious for nothing but praying for everything, lifting up our supplications to God with thanksgiving and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind. That's another military term. To set a sentry, not C-E-N-T-U-R-Y, but S-E-N-T-R-Y, to set a sentry around your mind, right? This is where the battle happens. And you know what? There are a lot of us in here tonight, the devil has been running roughshod over our brain. Roughshod over our brain. Because we just, we just like go with every single thought that comes in our mind. And our minds you know, which are unbelievably powerful tools that God has given to us, the capacity to imagine, hey, by the way, this was what got the people during Noah's day in so much trouble because the thoughts and intents and imaginations of their heart were constantly set on evil. It was like the devil's playground in their brain. And you know, as a, as a Christian, you can keep it all together on the outside and I don't just mean you, I mean me, I mean we. We can, have, we can portray this picture of spirituality on the outside. And you know, we can be all corrupt on the inside. All corrupt on the inside. I mean, there's a real battle. This is a piece of spiritual formation of discipleship. It's not just bringing, it's not just bringing our body into subjection to the spirit and the will of God. It is bringing our mind you know, the fruit of the Spirit, the very last one, so many are, are connected to our thinking and our heart, but the very last one is self-control, self-control. What an important fruit of God's Spirit that we so often fail to talk about. So, 
So anyway, it is a battle. Verse 24, when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai, thanks for coming to church tonight, in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel turned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree and at sunset Joshua commanded And they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Um, Just briefly on this, you know, sometimes these portions of scripture can be difficult for us to understand when we're talking about the children of Israel um, destroying completely a city and its inhabitants. And a couple of Thursday nights ago, um, I addressed this, and I can't remember what chapter it was, chapter three or something like that. It's either chapter one to six. It's, it's somewhere in there. But if you, want, if you want kind of a comprehensive answer on that, I would encourage you to go back and to watch that particular video. Um, so the, the people are destroyed. He holds up the spear. Uh, he holds it up until the full will of God is completed, including hanging the king on the tree. Now, I just want to say this really briefly about these verses. Don't forget that Joshua um, is a type of Jesus, right? There are so many things that we see in Joshua's life that are emblematic. They're a picture of our Savior, whose name is Joshua, Yeshua, same name. Um, For instance, he's the commander of the army of God's people. He's the one who leads us into the promised land. You know, there are just so many beautiful pictures of Christ that we see in Joshua's life. Uh, I would also say this, that there was a king that hung on the tree as a criminal. In the Old Testament, it was the king of Ai. There's also a king who hung on a tree. He was perfect and sinless, but he hung as a criminal for you and for me. There were stones that were rolled over the king of Ai after his body was taken down from the tree. And there was a stone that was rolled over the tomb where the king of kings and the Lord of lords was laid after he was taken down from the tree. But that stone was rolled away and he victoriously rose again on the third day. I say all of that to say Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So you remember like the, the basis of our relationship with God is built upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who though he was perfect and sinless, um, he was tempted as we are tempted, yet without sin, and he hung as a common criminal in our place, and the weight of the wrath and justice that you and I deserve for our sins was laid on him. The penalty was laid upon him. 
so that through his sacrifice we could be forgiven of our sins, that what was broken in our lives could be fixed and mended so that we could have right relationship with God and have eternal life, which begins the very moment that you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never taken that step of faith, there's gonna be an opportunity for you to do so tonight. Well, let's wrap up verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man is wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, which is the Mount of Blessing, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read, check this out, before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Now, you might be thinking, Man, what is, what is this all about? You know, why did they go through this process? Um, and just to let you know, this was, an, this was an anticipated moment. So Moses had told the people in Deuteronomy chapter 27, when you get into the promised land, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, two mountains that were right next to each other. The people are going to stand in the middle, and you're going to have uh, them on one side of the Ark of the Covenant and on the other side of the Ark of the Covenant. One mountain, you will proclaim blessings over the people of God, and on the other mountain, you will proclaim curses if, in fact, they do not fulfill the will of God. So this moment was an anticipated moment. They were looking forward to this moment. As the people, it was almost like You've entered the promised land and you're making a statement. You're not just putting your flag in the soil. What you're saying is this, you have a decision. You are always going to be in the valley of decision. Your life is oriented around my presence. You are a covenant people. I am to be in the middle of you, but as I'm in the middle of you, as you're rooted to me in my presence, and as you're reminded that you're a covenant people, you need to make decisions that will bring my blessings instead of making decisions that will bring a curse upon you. You will always be in the middle of the valley of decision. And not only that, you will know what my will is because I've given you my word. What does Joshua do? Joshua copies all of the words that Moses had said a whole new copy, which was a declaration. As the people were living in the land of Israel, now historically they were able to look back at that mountain and say, you know, we have a decision every day set before us to, to choose to follow God. We're a covenant people, we're a special people, we're a royal priesthood. 
We've been selected and chosen, not just to do things our own way, but to follow after the Lord. There was a, an altar that was built. There were uncut stones that the sacrifice was laid upon. And the sacrifice represented the atoning work of God. You know, it's interesting that the stones were uncut because all of the attention was to be drawn to the sacrifice. God didn't want man's brilliance, man's capabilities. He didn't want man's programs, you know, to muddy up the waters. He didn't want anything on that altar that was going to distract the people from the significance of the sacrifice. And so let me just say say this. We are a covenant people. We're covenant people. You know, our covenant, the mountain we look to is Mount Calvary. And we're people of the cross. We belong to the Lord. You know, the cross is not adorned with our efforts and our works and our buildings and our programs and our money and all of that stuff. There's only one thing that's significant that we need to be looking at, and that's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And as we, as on a daily basis, we come to the altar in a sense again, right? The altar of devotion to God. We come and as it were, we kneel before the cross of Christ and we we remember that we're a covenant people, the covenant between the Father and the Son that we participate in through faith. We're a people of blessing. And every day we have the privilege and opportunity to demonstrate our love for God by choosing to do those things that have been commanded to us by Christ. And when you and I choose to walk in that way, and by the way, let's just be reminded tonight that it is about the full counsel of God's word being conveyed to everybody. I love that aspect. That's almost like deeply reiterated here. Like, let's just make sure. Everybody knows the word of God, not a word left out. You know, as as we build our lives on a daily basis around the cross of Christ, remembering our covenant relationship with him, choosing those things that are pleasing to him, you and I can be sure that we will live in the place of blessing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. God, thank you for for your son, and thank you for this new life that you've given to us. Just so much grace, God. So much grace. And Father, I pray that uh, we would be uh, an inquiring people, that we would be leaning into your wisdom and direction, God, that that we would be a warring people, that we would take up the weapons of warfare that that you've given to us and we would fight this good fight. God, I pray that we would be a worshiping people on a daily basis, that we would be seeking the face of our Savior, that we would be walking with him. I pray tonight, God, that, that we would be a people that would walk not in defeat, but that we would walk in the victory that's been supplied to us through your son, as our eyes are closed tonight, as our heads are bowed, just a couple of things as we wrap up. Maybe tonight you've never put your trust and faith in Christ. And I just want to say I'm so grateful that you're here tonight and that, you know, your heart is to to seek and to pursue God, to know him. And tonight, there's just good news. You can know God through faith in his son 
The good news is that it's not your religious efforts. It's, it's good to come to church, but you know, church doesn't save. It's not through you conquering the bad behavior in your life. It's not bad to want to be a good person, but being a good person doesn't save you. Believing in Jesus Christ does. Tonight, maybe you need to take that step of faith. Maybe tonight, adversity and difficulty and failures has driven you to this place. And I want to tell you tonight, there's someone who can turn your defeat into victory. There's a, there's a, a Father in heaven whose arms are wide open to receive you. If tonight you will turn away from your rejection of him and your resistance of him, the sin in your life, and if you would come humbly like a little child and believe in Jesus. Tonight, if this is you and you need to take that step of faith, I'm just going to ask you this evening, would you raise your hand? I want to see who you are. God bless you in the back. Thank you for raising your hand. Thank you. Anybody else? Tonight, maybe as a Christian, you know, you've been just burdened with defeat and, and you know, maybe you've been a little MIA or AWOL and, and you need to come home to your Heavenly Father. You know, you've, you've been knocked down and, and you've been heeding the voice of the adversary. You've stayed down, but God tonight has told you to get up. Tonight, if this is you, I'll, I want to pray for you too. Would you raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. I see your hand. I see your hand. Thank you. It takes courage. I'm grateful for you guys. I see your hand. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Father, thank you for these tonight that just to have hearts that have turned to you. We pray that you would bless them as they, as they humbly come to you. Tonight is, we're just in this moment of prayer. If you raise your hand, I want to lead you in a prayer. God, God wants you. He wants your heart. He wants to hear your voice. And so I want to lead you in a very simple prayer tonight, a, a prayer of repentance, a prayer of faith, a, a prayer of anticipation because God's going to do great things. And so tonight, if you raise your hand, follow me in this prayer. Father, tonight I thank you that you love me. Tonight I'm choosing to believe in Jesus, your son, that he died for me and that he rose again And as I turn away from my sin and turn to faith in him, you've made me your child and forgiven me of my sin. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name, amen.